Hebrew Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 9, please. Luke chapter 9, where we truly will behold our God and see Him in His glory, in His goodness, in His power. And hopefully, as a result, be transformed. Brother Mike. (laughs) Father, we, we do adore you because there's none like you. Your glory and your power and your majesty and your mercy and your love are past finding out. They're deep and they are rich. You are awesome. And please, O Lord, have mercy on us. And we trust that you will because you're merciful. You abound in mercy. Look upon us and work and move in our hearts and our minds and help us to see Jesus for who he truly is. Grant grace this morning for we ask it in his name, believing and trusting and knowing that what we ask in his name, you give to us. Amen. This might seem like a strange way to start, but um, several years ago there was a movie that came out called Paranormal Activity. I've never seen it, so just so you know. But I heard about it, and actually, after reading this passage, I thought, oh, I want to see the trailer on this thing. So I checked out the trailer. It was like produced in 2006, I think it was. And they've had several cents, and really it was a really a low-budget film done uh, to freak you out is what it was all about. And it's called Paranormal Activity because basically, you know, whenever you can deal with ghosts and demons and stuff like that, it, it creates a, a freakish sense. We all hate this. It's unnerving to think that there could be somebody there or something there and you can't see them. And they're active and they're doing things. Well, the whole movie was designed in such a way that it made you feel that sense of watching a person sleeping and this stuff happening. So you're freaking out for the person. Because what they did is they set up these cameras in their home because they felt like there was some paranormal activity going on and they wanted to find out what it was. And so, sure enough, you get the, the scene from the cameras. It's like you're looking through the camera lens at night and now you're, you're the one seeing it and they're sleeping away and you're freaking out because of what's going to happen to them. Well, I tell you, that just sets the scenario up to cause us all to get unnerved and freak out. Because that's what we're like. We, we, if, if we encounter something that's paranormal, it unnerves us deeply. Because we realize our own frailty, our own weakness, and how much we're out of control, and how, and how much we're dependent on, on circumstances and situations and other things around us to protect us, Right? But as soon as you take away the things that we find so much security in, we get unnerved. Just think of one little thing. If you went to bed at night and you went down, downstairs, and, or if you have a two-story, if you don't, you just go to the front door and you unlock it and then go to bed. That little click would be unnerving, wouldn't it? Well, this is a little tiny steel bolt. Like we, we have that much confidence in that little thing that that's preventing them from getting in? We do. This is what we're like. We're strange creatures. 
We, we find our confidence in the things that we think and believe will give us security and peace, and we put our trust in them. And so as a result, when these things get taken away from us or we see things outside the normal for us, it freaks us out. And what we're dis- about to discover here in this passage in Luke chapter 9 is a situation that would have terrified the strongest of people. A paranormal experience happens. And within the scriptures, within the Bible, it's not uncommon to have paranormal activity. When we say paranormal, it's not normal. It's other than normal. It's not the normal standard way we operate in life. And we realize that every now and then the Bible does this for us, doesn't it? And we look in behind the curtains. And in behind the curtains, like, ooh, that's scary. (laughs) Close those back again. Because behind the curtains... Are angels and demons behind the curtains of glory and power? And the weird thing is, every time we see it, it's just just here. It's like, I'm here, but if I see it, it's right there. It really, in terms of distance, it's not very far away. It's right there. But in terms of our ability to see it, we, could, we can't do it. We can't touch it. We can't grab it. We can't see it. It's a whole other dimension. And the scripture actually does reveal quite a bit and help us to understand what this paranormal activity is. It's not like how Hollywood depicts it at all. But it's real and it's true. And that we find out, even here in this passage, that when we do get to see it, it freaks us out. Not only does it freak us out, it often causes us to react in ways that aren't appropriate. And this is what we're going to discover. So the first thing that happens here in this passage is that Peter, James, and John have the veil opened for them. They see beyond the veil. And this is how it reads, beginning at verse 28. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So here is Jesus going to go up to a mountain to pray. In Matthew, it says a high mountain. We're not exactly sure which mountain, but he's going up on a mountain to pray. And as he goes up on this mountain, he says to him, clearly he somehow, the disciples are there, and he says, Peter, James, John, come on, let's go. Let's go pray. So he selects these three from them, and he takes them up on this mountain. And as they're there praying, Jesus begins to, in their midst, he's praying, to transform. A metamorphosis is taking place. So it actually says his appearance was altered. His face begins to change. Now, imagine that for a moment. His face is beginning to change while you're praying with him, and you're noticing paranormal activity. Like, what is that? that's freaky. We don't know, but it's, it's changing into a glorified state. 
Who knows if it becomes super bright? Probably. We know actually the brightness is a factor. Who knows if, it's, if, if his features actually change? Does his jawline change? Does his nose, his eyes, everything? Does all this kind of change? Well, it could, very well could. We don't know, but he's, it says it's altered, not just in, in terms of goes from dull to shiny, but the whole appearance of it, what it looked like, changed. That's what it says. According to Matthew, he says that his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. So he's wearing probably brown-colored clothing, a lot of their clothing was the same. It was very animal colorish looking because that's where it came from. They, they, they weren't into like, uh, unless you're the priest, super fancy clothing where you dye it and stuff. So all of a sudden, very regular, very almost peasant-like clothing is becoming brilliant, like glorious clothing. Now, could you imagine that for a moment? Just imagine what you're experiencing here. You're praying with Jesus and he begins to transform before your very eyes into a transcendent, glorious, angelic being. Now, just as we hear in Revelation chapter 2, I believe it is, where Jesus is transformed there into a glorious being, it sounds very similar to this, as bright as the sun, hard to look at, intense and freaky. Freaky in the sense that you are now in the presence of someone or something that could, it feels like, destroy you in a second with their gaze, their power, their transcendence, their glory is palpable. It's hitting you, and it's terrifying you. Now, this is no ordinary prayer meeting. This isn't, you know, the average show up and have a prayer with Jesus. This is on a whole new level. Because not only do we have Jesus transforming before their eyes, but two other guys show up. And what does the text say? Not just two ordinary guys. Moses and Elijah show up. And Moses and Elijah in a glorified state. Now, of course, we're wondering, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? At least that's what I was wondering. Did they have a headband? (laughs) Moses. Elijah. You know, what was it? Or perhaps maybe, maybe Jesus introduced them. Peter, James, John, Moses, and Elijah. Or, or perhaps what it was is while we know they're talking, and maybe when Jesus is talking to them, Jesus mentions to Moses, says, he says, Moses, I'm about to go to Jerusalem, and I'm about to be betrayed. I'm about to suffer and be wrongly accused by the scribes and Pharisees, and perhaps Moses, you know, this is the first time he's hearing it, because we, you know, these are things that the angels long to look into. These are things that we, these are unfolding, and even, even the angels and the, and the spirits, and they don't know what's going on. This is unfolding before the cosmos, right? And then perhaps Elijah hears it, and then Elijah says to Jesus um, something encouraging, encourages him, because he hears this and it troubles him, And Jesus turns to Elijah and says, thank you, Elijah. But whatever the case, we don't know exactly how it is. They they know it's Moses and Elijah. Somehow it happens. It doesn't explain how. And and if you look at verse 33, just down a little bit, it says, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. So 
Peter, who said this, knows that it's Moses and Elijah. He makes that comment right there. He knows that that's who's the, who, who they are. So somehow it worked out. But more importantly, Peter, James, and John, they encounter two of the most prominent men in all of biblical history. Along with Jesus in his glory, these three figures that are just mind-blowing. They saw what we will eventually all see. But for now, it remains veiled to us. They saw behind that veil, and they peered into things, things unseen by us, just like Stephen did. When he's being stoned in Acts chapter 7, verse 55, here's what it says. It says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he, Stephen, said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now these are some spectacular encounters of the paranormal kind. They're not normal. And they're awesome, and they're glorious, and they're stunning, and they're, you know, life-altering, so to speak. However, having said that, you know what's most interesting? Is how often we misjudge their impact. Or how we could be sitting here even this morning thinking, man, wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be unbelievable to be a part of that? To experience that? If I could only get a glimpse and see God and, and see Jesus on the throne and, and, see, and see the spiritual world like the disciples did, that would make all the difference in my spiritual life. Do you ever think of something like that? Boy, if I, if I could ever experience that, that would just change me. It would just have such an impact. Yet here, I'm, I'm here to tell you it's not true. It's not true. We need to realize that signs, that wonders, the angelic world, the spiritual beings, and all this stuff, seeing it, experience it, can never produce faith or changed hearts. You might say, really? No. A lot of people, if I saw God, if I saw God, I would trust him and I would believe in him. No, you wouldn't. How can I say that? Well, think for a moment. Even Peter, James, and and John struggled believing after this. It isn't long after this, and Peter denies Jesus. And John and the rest of the disciples, they abandon him and run away. Well, wait a second. They're the ones who, they just saw this. They saw Jesus unveiled in his glory. They They saw Elijah. They saw Moses. Surely their faith would be unshakable, right? Apparently not. Or just think of Israel who experienced the exodus from Egypt. They saw God do more miracles in four weeks than anyone will ever see in four millennia. It was just one thing after another. And yet, their hearts were still filled with unbelief. They didn't trust God, and they continued to respond to him as if he weren't God. This is why Jesus said, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Because we think a sign or a wonder would transform our faith when in fact it would do nothing of the sort. Oh, it would freak you out. Oh, it would impact your day. Oh, it would change that week. Oh, yeah, it would rattle you and do a lot of things. But it would not. It would not make you go from, you know, being wavering in your faith to being strong in your faith. Faith is a gift from God by the Spirit. 
This is why if you have eyes to see that Jesus is Lord, you don't need a miraculous event like what we see in the text here, or what the disciples encountered. You've already received a miraculous unveiling from God. If you know Jesus, see Jesus, believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus, you are blessed. It is the gift of God to you. If you think that if you see him and that you could have experience with him and you, if you're longing for an experience and you think that by that experience somehow it would change everything about you, it's not true. It's not how it works. What you need is to be strengthened in what you've been given. Strengthened in what you have if you have faith. You need to seek him, to pursue him, to ask him to reveal Jesus to you, not like he did to the disciples there, but to, to, to reveal Jesus to your heart. So that you believe without seeing. That's truly the blessed state. Because you know what will happen? If only our physical eyes see, but our spiritual eyes do not, our fleshly response is to venerate the experience. Just look at how Peter responded. Look at verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. Obviously, in this encounter, there's, there's much to this they probably missed. They probably, the, the Spirit of God put them in a deep sleep, and then they probably had a lot of things, they said things and things went on that they didn't want them to know or see or hear. And then they, they come, because here they kind of come to, they're heavy with sleep, but they became fully awake. But when they became fully awake, and they saw his glory and the two who stood with him, and as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we're here. It's really good. This is unbelievable. Let us make three tents, or better translated, tabernacles. That's really what the word is. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. I like that little, if you look at the text at the end there, not knowing what he said. Yeah, it's kind of a little funny addition on the end. It's kind of like a friend excusing another friend who makes an ignorant statement in a group of people, and he jumps in to rescue him. He, didn't, he doesn't really know what he's talking about. Just, can we move on? <laughs> it was rash, it was brash, it was ready, aim, uh, ready, fire, aim. You know, typical Peter. He's just the, the guy who just, he just says it. I'm sure on the way down from the mountain, he's going, oh, stupid, stupid, I'm such an idiot. I, why did I say that? I have no idea why I said that. It just came to me, and I said it. <clears throat> that's typically what he's doing. But that's also what we do. God does something great in our lives, and our, our temptation is to venerate the experience, to do something, to bring, build a monument, to somehow to say, let's, let's make a tabernacle. We want to build a monument, and then we begin worshiping the creation rather than the creator. This is our tendency. Israel did this with a bronze snake in the wilderness, if you remember. If you remember the story, they're grumbling. Israel's grumbling against God and against Moses, and they're whining and complaining. And so God was getting to the point where he's fed up with them. He sent fiery snakes in amongst them. And people started dying. Well, they didn't like that so much, so they ran to Moses and started begging him, please, please seek the Lord that he would stop this. So, so God was merciful, and he said to Moses, okay, build a bronze snake and put it on top of a pole and plant the pole, and when the people get bit, and when they look at this pole, they'll be healed. 
So that happened. And then what, what happened after this? Well, Israel, what do they begin to do? Start to worship the pole. Makes sense. That's what we do, right? We begin to worship the pole, not the God who, who stopped it. And Hezekiah ends up destroying this pole because of how Israel was worshiping it. This is what it says in 2 Kings 18, verse 4. Hezekiah broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. There you go. Isn't that like us? Isn't that what we do? This is so often what we're like when God shows up powerfully in our lives at a particular time or place. If God showed up in our midst here this morning and we had a powerful experience of his presence, a paranormal experience, it was beyond, it was like the veil was pulled back and something powerful happened, what would we probably do? Well, we'd probably begin to think about the clothes we wore that day, the chair I was sitting in, the songs we were singing, the day in which it happened, and we would try to repeat that so somehow we could have that experience again. That's what we're like. That's what we do. We tend, so sure, we don't go and build a, say we don't build a shrine, but we do that kind of thing. We look to find patterns and see that if we do this, when we did this, God did this. Therefore, if we do this again, God will do this again. That's how we think. Because we tend to venerate the wrong stuff. Yet with God, it has nothing to do with the location, with the timing, with the clothing, with the songs, with the whatever. It has to do everything to do with his plan and what he's designed to do. In fact, when we do, do try to imitate the same circumstances, thinking that we get a repeat experience, it is usually the sure way to make sure that it never happens again. Of course, in saying this, we do have memorials, we need memorials, and memorials are good if what memorials do is point us to God, to his grace, to his power, to his goodness, and, and because of them, we, we remember to worship. But our tendency is not to do that. Our tendency is to memorialize and venerate and to worship the wrong thing, to serve the wrong thing. Just think of the history of the church. One particular example is how the Roman Catholics have venerated saints for, for centuries. Even their bones and relics from them were highly sought after. Prized possessions to venerate. And why is that? Because they think if they could somehow just get a piece of the apostles or these great saints, that they'd somehow get a piece of their, get some of the blessing. That the power, the power was in them somehow. The power was there, and it wasn't. The power's with God. However, if if we know God and his ways, we should expect that if he's going to do something great again, it's probably going to be different than it was last time. If you met God on the mountain, next time it'll probably be in the valley. But if you were thinking that it will be in the valley, it'll probably be while you're up in a tree. He's going to surprise you. He's going to do what you're not expecting. Just like Elijah who we have here in the text, he goes up in the mountain. And that's the other significant thing here. We have only the three guys who meet God on the mountain. Moses met him on the mountain, Elijah on the mountain, and here Jesus, who is God, is on the mountain. 
And those three come together, and they hear God's voice, and they hear that there's this glorious activity going on. But, but you notice how Elijah was quite different than Moses, right? With, with Moses, it was, it was all flash and power and glory, and it was thunder, and it was earthquake, and it was lightning, and it was clouds, and it was darkness, and God spoke to him in the midst of it like the sound of mighty trumpets. With Elijah on the same mountain, there was an earthquake. God wasn't in the earthquake. There was, a, there was a storm, but God wasn't in the storm. There was, there was lightnings, there was flashings, there was, there was stuff, all, this, all the same activity happens. God's not in it. But then God whispers. God was in the whisper. Totally different. That, that's like God. That's what he is like. We serve a God who knows what we're like. He knows how quickly we venerate and we worship the wrong thing. And so he's constantly having to mess with us. Because we typically will look for patterns and think that if we get the figure out the pattern, we figured him out. And now we got him at our service. But he doesn't work that way. Because, you know, the way to experience God is not by venerating any of the outside circumstances or situations. The true way is by looking at what God does next in this text. In verse 34 and following, God's response is to validate his son. Watch what he does. Verse 34, he says, As he, Peter, was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what had happened and what they had seen. Now, if seeing Jesus transformed along with glorified a glorified Moses and Elijah wasn't enough. Now all of a sudden, this glory cloud comes and overshadows them, envelops them. And God the Father speaks to them. Now, it was already crazy. It was already paranormal. It was already out of this world. And now it actually adds something that's new. And they were afraid. Well, what were they before? I think that he's understating things here. It's probably more like they were terribly freaked out. They were afraid before, but now they're terrified. It's because this wasn't some like Seattle mist cloud that kind of rolls in off the, off the ocean and comes in and kind of gets gloomy. We have today and you got some mist and in there, you know, it's just kind of pleasant. No, this is different. A cloud comes, and it was probably came, and either when the cloud shows up, it shows up, and it was thick, it was probably dense, and all of a sudden, it's either really dark or really bright. Those are kind of the two ways, usually, when this cloud shows up. And the presence of God was palpable. You don't see him, but you just tremble, knowing I am in the presence, and I know it, of the most holy being I've ever been in the presence of. I can't see him, but I can almost, I feel it down to the core of my being. And it's terrifying. Terrifying. 
But not, not terrifying because you feel he's mean and he's going to wipe you out. Terrifying in the sense that you've never been so exposed in all of your life. You've never felt so naked, so raw, so vulnerable, so exposed. You know, when you, if you look at stories of revival, when God shows, his presence shows up, so often you'll hear of these kinds of descriptions. When it's a really powerful revival happens and God's presence shows up in a powerful way that it's almost palpable and people know it in their soul, one of the things, the expressions you hear is that people become very aware of holiness, his holiness, and their unholiness. Your sin is like hyper-exposed. Your inner nakedness, the stuff that you think you can hide, is exposed. You're very aware of who you are before this holy God. He is holy, 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 and you're not. And you become very aware of this. And one of the things that leads because of this is quickly is confession of sin. You confess before him, you cry out to him, you turn to him, and you look to him for compassion. It's a very typical response in in revivals. In this particular situation, the response was this. This is what God says to them. Notice that you have this amazing, powerful, glorious experience that's terrifying them, and God speaks. And what God says here is exactly what we all need to hear. It's not the powerful, amazing experience. This is what we need to hear. This is what we need to know. God says, this is my son. This is my son. Listen to him. You have Elijah, you have Moses, these great figures, and all of a sudden they disappear. And God points right at his son. The one to listen to is my son. You want to know me? You want to experience God? Listen to my son. God wants to make it perfectly clear that believing Jesus to be the son of God and to listen to his word is the most important thing. It doesn't matter how many experiences or paranormal activity you might have had. If you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God and obey his word, you have not been given eyes to see. But if you're seeking Jesus, praising Jesus, walking with Jesus, and obeying Jesus, then you are are more blessed than the apostles were that day. Because... You've been given the gift to believe. Because even though they had all the visuals, all the audio, everything hitting their senses, their outward senses, they still didn't have the spirit of Jesus like they would on Pentecost. They saw and they believed after Pentecost in a way that they didn't on the mountain. This is why it's always much better to know Jesus in your heart than to know about him through your eyes. The blessing is to know Jesus and to listen to his word. The most important thing is to know him and obey his word. The ones who do do that are the ones who see God. They're the ones who know God. They're the ones who see Jesus, sure, not up on a mountain glorified with, the, with Moses and Elijah, but they see Jesus in the way that's most important. They see him with eyes of faith, and the eyes of faith given to them by God. It's much more blessed, blessed to believe and to not have seen. Because believing, you know what believing is like? 
Believing is a lot like being on the mountain when the veil is lifted. The moment you believe, Jesus becomes real. The moment you believe, life changes. The moment you believe, your eyes are open to see circumstances correctly. Life changes. We might want or wish God would give us an amazing experience like the apostles had. But that isn't what you or I should want. What we should want is to believe, even though we don't see. This is much more precious than seeing. This is the kind of seeing that is blessed. But what, do we, but what if, the question is, what if we struggle with believing? I wish I believed more. I wish my faith was stronger. Oh, if I just had an experience. No, you just need eyes of faith to see Jesus, and that will transform you. And so now how does that happen? What does Romans 10 tell us? It says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And the reason why this is the case is because the word of God, by, by the Spirit... The Spirit works in the Word of God. It allows us to see Jesus. It allows us to see God. It allows us to re-see the world. It allows us to see what He's like. It allows us to get to know His ways. It allows us to begin to see the difference that Jesus makes in our lives. The most important thing, the most important thing It's not a paranormal experience. The most important thing is seeing Jesus as he's revealed through the word. This is the most important thing. And I guarantee you, as you you seek the Lord, as you seek to know him, as you seek to have the eyes of of your heart enlightened, as you get into the word and as he reveals himself to you, your life has changed. It impacts you in in a much greater way than if you ever saw him visually. Him being revealed to the eyes of your heart. And I can testify you personally that knowing Jesus and listening to his word is a difference maker. You know, when I went on sabbatical and recently what I did, one of the things that I did is I poured myself into the scriptures and read a whole lot of it. I'd read, you know, I could read 20 chapters or whatever. I had time, I'd just sit there and I'd read. And I wasn't all, I, I didn't get all wrapped up in, you know, how much to read or if I read every particular. It was just, I had no agenda. I, would just, I, was just, I just wanted to know God. I just want him to speak to me. I just wanted his word to wash me. And it was amazing because in it, you know, there might have been a day where I read two verses. I didn't care because those two verses just, they spoke to me and I just dwelled there. I mean, days where, yeah, I might read 20 chapters. I'd skim right over genealogies and not even care about it. (laughs) What a sin. (laughs) Because what mattered, and all I really wanted to know is I, I wanted to know God. I want him to reveal himself to me. And it was never magic. It was never like, whoa. It was subtle. But God was working on me and revealing things to me and speaking to me in powerful ways. And as I reflect back on it, it's probably the best thing I ever did. It's just spend time in his word and let him speak to me. Because in that, the most important thing is to see God, know who he is, and to obey his word. And as you do that, you experience God and you get to know God in ways that I believe transcend 
what the disciples experienced on the mountain. Truly does. Sure, it doesn't have all the flash, all the glitz, all the glory, all the drama. But it's powerful. Let me charge you this morning as we leave here. To break away from the chaos of your life. Do whatever it takes to break away from the chaos. Wake up early, stay up late, do something. Find time to seek Jesus in his word. Have no agenda, but just, I, Lord, I'm just gonna, I'm just, I want to know you. And I'm going to learn about you and, and discover you. And I just want to know your ways and everything about you. Because knowing you, knowing you is eternal life. Knowing you is the most important thing. Oh, Lord, just, just reveal yourself to me. You do that. You, you commit yourself to knowing the Lord, pursuing him, going after him, just knowing him. It'll be a transformative experience in your life. It will change your life. You truly will. But if you continue, if you do not pursue Jesus, if you do not pursue his word, if you do not t- take time out of the chaos of life, this, the media, the world, the pressures of life, and everything else will just extinguish your faith. And all of a sudden, you won't really see Jesus on his throne anymore. What you see is you see all of the troubles and sorrows and things of life get huge to you. You're overwhelmed by everything in this world. You're overwhelmed by the relationships, by the politics, by, by your work, by the finances, by everything around you. It's just big, and it's out there, and it's chaotic, and it's, it's overpowering you. And your faith is flickering. So all I can say to you, if you don't want that to happen, pursue the most important thing. It's the Father. Listen to the words of the Father. This is my son, my beloved son. Listen to him. That's a game changer. Amen. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you that you've revealed to us Jesus, that he is Lord. I beg of you, Father, and I ask right now that you would, these people's hearts right here, stir in them a hunger to know you more deeply, to know Jesus, to pursue you, to go after you, to want to hunger for you, to dive into your word so that they might learn about you, know about you, discover you again and again. Father, give them eyes to see. Give them a hunger to pursue you. And reveal Jesus to them. So that by it they would be transformed and be made into his image. Amen.